You are listening to the MJ Sportscast. Recapping the latest games, getting you up to date on the latest sports news, and providing our exciting Bay Area picks. This is the MJ Sportscast with your hosts, Mike Tang and Jerry Yang. Today's guest on the show today is Julia Sun. Julia is a TV host and has been seen on some of the major affiliate channels such as NBC, CBS, ABC, and Fox, in addition to streaming platforms like Roku and Amazon Fire TV. Julia is also currently on Twitch, where she hosts a weekly show called United We Sport, talking about sports, politics, and the social impact both on and off the field. Julia, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Yeah, it's so great to be here. I want to say hello to everybody in the Bay Area. Bay Area is my home, uh, so I feel like I'm back at home virtually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you know, I reached out to you, Julia, earlier this month, and your story has been very intriguing, at least to me. And I'd like for you to talk a little bit about your story from being an engineer, you know, growing up in San Jose, California, to being a TV host um, out there in New York. You know, it's so funny that you would say that. A lot of people find my life intriguing, but to me, it's just my life. I'm like, oh, what's so interesting about that? But I'll tell you anyway that, you know, I grew up in the 90s um, in San Francisco. That's where I'm I'm from. Uh, went to elementary school there, went to middle school there, and then I went to the South Bay. I graduated high school in the Cupertino San Jose area. Um, I mean, you know, I'm a typical Silicon Valley girl. And uh, like a typical Silicon Valley person, your parents are probably in tech, your neighbors are engineers, uh, your friends are engineers, their parents are engineers. And to me, it was like, there is nothing else in the world for me to do except to become an engineer. Maybe one of my friend wanted to be you know, a doctor somehow. And we're, we looked at her really weird. I'm like, oh, what's wrong with you? Um, but everybody wanted to study computer science. Everybody I knew wanted to study electrical engineering. Everybody I know wanted to work for a big tech company and someday maybe be a founder and sell a billion dollar unicorn. Who knows? Some Something along that line. Um, my high school, the high school that I graduated from, it was very competitive. Uh, we had about 400 people in my class, about 100 of us ended up going to Berkeley. Uh, I simply mm-hmm. just didn't want my college experience to be, hey, high school grade 13 to 16 again, because <laughs> that would be <laughs> no fun. Uh, mm-hmm. So I ended up picking the school that is the farthest away from home. I went all the way to the other side of America. So I ended up going to college um, in New York State. It was a wonderful experience, although I did hate the snow. I ha- did not see snow for like a good eight to nine years before I moved over to the East Coast. Uh, and it was just a shock. I was like, what is this white stuff? Oh, it's called snow. Oh my God, never mind. I, I do know this, guys. Um, and, and then and then after that, I felt like my eyes completely opened as in I met people from all walks of life, people from all 50 states, territories, and people from different countries. Some of my classmates, they were also into tech, just like all of my Silicon Valley friends, but a lot of them weren't. They had other interests. And I did end up working in engineering for a little bit. I worked for uh, one of the, you know, top um, aerospace manufacturers and and, uh, defense contractors in America. It was a really, really good experience. The only thing I would say is it was exactly what I anticipated. Um, I love to solve uh, problems in the laboratory. I liked walking on the manufacturing plants and seeing stuff gets made. That's just my thing. Um, I did feel that because the job that I had, the place that I was at, it was essentially a government contractor. And therefore, I feel the atmosphere was a little bit um, complacent. You know, my dream back then was, oh, one day I would love to be a NASA engineer. And I felt like maybe, maybe I'm having second thoughts. And I was just looking around to see what else was there. Um, And at the time, um, most of my friends um, that I met in college, uh, they wanted a high paying job in New York. You know, we can talk about everybody has student debt, you need to pay them off. So everybody wanted to go to big city and have a 
high-paying job, and、uh, one of the highest-paying job at the time was investment banking or management consulting. Similar,、mm-hmm. similar.、Uh, I mean, not not exactly same, but similar skill sets. And、uh, I was just fortunate enough to land an investment banking job. I did. I never took a single class in economics, finance, management, marketing. None of that. Never. Like zero.、Uh, but at the time, I was hired for my math skills.、Uh, I was known. <laughs> at my workplace, as the girl who knows how to crunch numbers, like if you need like a spreadsheet made, that's your girl. <laughs> yeah, and I was very, very good at that. However, that was when I realized that knowing how stuff work, getting stuff done, that only gets you so far in life. It is really important that you get stuff done. It is really important that you get stuff made. And engineers, we engineers, we get stuff made.、Um, but at the end of the If you don't know how to talk about the stuff you build, if you don't know how to present the ideas you have, other people simply don't know about it. I used to be very shy. I used to not be able to talk to anybody. I'm like, I'm totally an introvert.、Um, forget about coming onto a podcast like this.、Mm-hmm. If you and I, like you two and I,、mm-hmm. met in a coffee shop or something, or just like look the other way and get out, <laughs> like I did、yeah. not want to socialize. You know, the the Silicon Valley typical nerd. Next door, that was me, <laughs> and and then in New York, and I was like, you know, guys, I I, I got to change this. I I can't just be such a geek. Um, and I was good at what I do, but I felt like I was missing a whole different aspect in life.、Um, so I tried a bunch of things.、Um, I, I, I had a teacher who taught me how to match colors in my outfit. I had a coach who taught me how to do makeup. It's like you know, in chemistry class, you learn this is a Bunsen burner. Here's a beaker. Here's a pipette. Okay, well, in makeup lessons, I would learn. Oh, here's an eyeliner brush. This is a fan brush. This is a foundation brush. It's the same process, but Completely different things, and I learned them. I was like, "Oh, I'm getting a little bit comfortable." And then I was working on my public speaking.、Um, the thing that really worked for me、uh, in terms of public speaking ended up being acting classes, acting, improv, and comedy. How to make people laugh? How to make people comfortable?、Um, You know, I, I think I'm making you two rather comfortable. I, I'm hoping.、Um, so I, it, it was it was really really useful, and that was when I fell in love with acting. When I fell in love with being on stage, I eventually landed、uh, some some roles in movies.、Uh, Student films, feature films, and then I had、uh, some roles off Broadway.、Uh, it it was really really good, and then I I had an agent.、Um, I did fashion model fashion modeling for a little bit, print only because I I'm only five five, so I'm not tall enough to work the runway. You need to be five nine <laughs> or taller、right. to do that.、Um, and then、um, one day I just went to an audition. I thought it was. For a lead role in a romantic comedy, which I would love to do, and then I got there, and they're like, "No, this is not a romantic comedy. We're casting a television host." And I was like, "What the hell is a television host?" And then they're、mm-hmm. like, "Oh yeah, a television host. That's this, this, this." I was like, "Okay, whatever. I don't understand." But here's my headshot. I'm here anyway. Let me try it. I tried it. I would say because on that particular day, I had no expectations whatsoever. I was relaxed. I just didn't care.、Uh, I did really well, and I actually got the job. So I was hosting. Wow. Wow. I was true story. <laughs> I, I was hosting a lifestyle show. It was you know so blessed that that it was it happened to be nationally syndicated. If you ever watch the show LX New York on NBC,、uh, it was very similar to that. I would get into a cab, go to fancy restaurants, go to a spa, go to like the top tourist attractions, or just go to like the farmers market or somewhere on the street and introduce to my viewers. Oh, here's a good place to shop. Here's a good place to eat. Oh, check out this thing. Look at how cool I am. It was such a. It was like the perfect show. It was the perfect show. I wish I could do something like that still. And then. At the end of that show, I got some very positive feedbacks. Like Julia, how long have you been doing? I'm like,、uh, like three months. <laughs> and then they were like, "Oh, you're pretty good at this." And I was like, "Oh, thanks." And that was when I started to seriously considering hosting shows for a living. 
Um, it was difficult for me because I obviously <laughs> did not study anything remotely close to journalism, English, uh, communications, none of that. Um, but, but I just wanted my foot into the door. Um, so I, I worked on it for, I mean, it took longer than I wanted, but eventually I would say I got a, like a big break, uh, when I hosted a business show with, uh, Jim Kramer on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Um, so that was a totally different vibe, of course. If your listeners um, follow the stock market, Jim Cramer needs no introduction whatsoever. Um, so he's crazy. Like I would run, I would run into him in the makeup room like six thirty a.m. He's like, "Excuse me, excuse me, going on CNBC," and then we'll go back to our hits. He's just a crazy person, always on the go. I mean, he, he's like that on TV too. It's his real personality. Wow. <laughs> it's not like you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, so Did you get that, to touch the button? Did you get uh, to yeah, press the button? Uh, well, that button, that button was that was an exclusive CNBC set. Oh, okay. So I did not get to touch it on camera. But yeah, I, I did oh. touch it like off camera. I was like, Kramer, you're crazy. You know? And we did some hits together. I hosted, I, I probably, I mean, I lost count, but I must have interviewed at least a several hundreds of public company CEOs uh, from the floors of the a floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Um, that was a really good experience until one day I decided, okay, I've been there, done that, check. Um, I do not want to do this anymore. I want to do something else. And then I started doing all kinds of other shows. Um, so I, it, it's just been a wonderful journey. Um, for all your listeners, if you're like, oh, I want to be a TV host too. Like, you know, let me just follow what Julia did. I'll just say right off the bat, you cannot replicate what I did because I really, I just stumbled upon this. Uh, I didn't plan any of this, but it has been wonderful. Yeah, you've definitely um, have held, you know, separate roles throughout your career here. Um, it goes it goes to show, you know, what I've you know told um, my listeners um, before is that, you know, what you do in your teens and your 20s doesn't mean that you have to, you know, stay doing that Absolutely. there. So, you know, especially like if you're unhappy um, doing something or you're not passionate about it, you can always, you know, try to reinvent yourself and, um, you know, explore, you know, other avenues and, you know, take on um, volunteer uh, type situations and see what you really like to do. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It is very difficult to put in practice because as your listeners, as we get out of college, get a job, you're like, yeah. I have these real life obligations. Like I have to pay my rent <laughs> and, and among yeah. other things. So I cannot leave my day job uh, because right. I just have to earn a paycheck. And, and let's face it, um, a lot of the so-called glamorous jobs like TV hosting, like sports, like any kind of performing, um, they don't pay well unless you get a million dollar contract. Mm -hmm. But those contracts are just, they're, they're very, very few. Don't, you know, it is silly to go out and expect to get those contracts because at the end of the day, that a lot of that is luck. Um, if you yeah. can mm -hmm. sort of have a, you know, you're in the game in a city like San Francisco, in a city like LA, in a city like New York, you are by definition good enough. But whether you can move through that bubble and land a million dollar contract, that comes down to luck. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think luck is definitely plays a big factor in a lot of people's careers. And I think definitely for yours, since there's so few roles, <laughs> yeah. so few uh, opportunities that, um, you know, it's really inspirational to hear that you, you are able to stumble onto a job and kind of make it a career. Um, so I guess what made you interested in sports and how did you turn your attention to a sports show and do you have any favorite teams that you want to give a shout out to uh sure so i i will tell your listeners first thing and foremost i was the most oblivious person uh when it came to sports when i grew up um i said this uh when mark cuban was on my show i said mark look for the first 25 years of my life i knew absolutely nothing about sports not like a little <laughs> bit about sports no 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 nothing about sports nothing about sports and then when i was stepping into the spotlight uh you know as as a tv host i suddenly realized that there is there are so much similarities between hosting a television shows versus being a competitive athlete I call my job a sport 
because I have to go out there, do my hits, however long it is. Um, and at the end of my program, I get judged. Uh, maybe I do not get judged in terms of I get an actual score <laughs> on, a, on a scoring card that's displayed across the Chiron. No, but like, for example, when Mike invited on me on my show, he was essentially in the judging judges chair. He saw one of my other shows and he's like, oh, Julia, yeah, she looks legit. Uh, let's have her on this podcast. So for the longest time when I was, you know, getting on TV, trying to get on TV, I felt like a competitive athlete. I did not mm. feel like a TV host. I felt like with everything else that I did, all the other careers I had, um, and, and I have like multiple careers, like, you know, I've been an engineer, been an investment banker. I was at one point the co-founder of a healthcare startup. I, I did like, you know, I'm a playwright. I have been like all over the place, uh, <laughs> but TV hosting frankly, it is the hardest thing I've done. Uh, probably part of it has to do with my personality. I naturally, you know, talking to people comes to me naturally. Um, I've, I've trained that skill over the years, but it just felt terrifying when a camera is pointing at you. Um, you have almost no support. You're there mm -hmm. by yourself in the spotlight. Um, you have these people looking at you. Some people, they just don't care whatsoever. And some people are like, oh my God, let's hope she messes up so I can take <laughs> her spot. <laughs> you have those. It's the exact psychology as what a competitive athlete go through. So I equate my job as a um, single player with a judging component, a single sport with a judging component. Um, that's how I became interested in sports. Um, there were some extremely hard days um, during the time when I was trying to get on TV. And that brings um, to my favorite athlete. Um, she's not the most well-known person. Uh, her name is Ashley Wagner. Um, she, she's, she's an American, uh, grew up in Kansas. Currently she's, she's, she's retired, um, living in Boston, mm -hmm. like wh whatever sports she played, it, it doesn't even matter. It didn't even matter mm -hmm. what kind of glory she reached, but she is my favorite athlete because the time that she was fighting to become a U.S. national champion, the time that when she was fighting to become an Olympian, to become a world medalist, that happened to overlap with my timeline to try to get on TV. So, yeah, go go ahead. And and for our listeners who um, are maybe not familiar with Ashley Wagner, um, is she um, in the Olympics? Yeah, or so the, you, the, the end story, I mean, people say the end justifies the mean, but for me, the end wasn't really important. And the end, mm -hmm. she became a three-time U.S. national champion. She became an Olympic bronze medalist, and she was a world silver medalist. Um, she was also internet famous for a while for her meme. <laughs> she was receiving yeah. her oh, score yeah. Olympics. She wasn't thrilled. And they were like, oh, here's that. <laughs> you know, but um, what... Uh, what, what the reason why I loved her was not because she became a three-time U.S. champion, was what she did before she became a U.S. champion. Um, she was, uh, when the first time she was going for her uh, Olympic Team USA Olympic spot, she missed the spot that uh, the US, Team USA in her sport was sending two athletes uh, that year, and she came in number three in the US. So she was left off the team. Um, and she, you know, and then she kept training. It was incredibly difficult to everybody, all the athletes, you know this, they, they have injuries. <laughs> and she had doubts, should I keep going? Should I not keep going? And then two years later, when she came back to win the national championship, she did an interview with NBC. And I will always remember this. She said, for the past couple seasons, I felt like the almost girl, almost becoming the national champion, almost becoming an Olympian, almost making the world's team, almost getting the top two, almost this, almost that, almost, almost, almost incredibly frustrated. And guess what? That was exactly how I felt 
when I was trying to get on TV. Like I would turn on TV. It was like, I know like every other guest. I have their phone, not just like know them as in they're famous. It's like, I've spoken to them. Like I, I try to go to networking events and pass around like my, my contacts and QR codes. I, I'm like, I'm so close to this, but I'm not there. And I don't know if I would ever get there, but I still want to give it a shot. I still want to find a way to make it work just so 50, 60 or 70 year late years later, I don't live with this kind of regret and say, Oh, what if, um, so that's why she resonates with me. Um, she talks about being the almost girl. And that was one of my trademark. And that's why I, I hear that in your um, introduction. Thank you so much. Um, you talked about that. I'm the creator of almost gold. So this show is named after her. Yeah. You know, a lot of people, they, they think of figure skaters and they think of, you know, all the gold medalists, you know, Christy Yamaguchi, mm-hmm. Michelle Kwan, Tara Lipinski, mm-hmm. but they don't, you know, hear, they don't hear the stories of Ashley Wagner too much here. So it, it's really great that, um, you know, you thought of your project Almost Gold in terms of, you know, putting the light onto silver medalists and that, you know, there is life, you know, beyond just getting a gold medal. Yeah. And, and I've um, uh, throughout, you know, the research of, of this project, writing this project, um, I've spoken to a lot of Olympic silver medalists. They don't get enough. They don't get nearly enough TV coverage. They don't get any yeah. endorsement deals. That's just the nature of store, sports endorsement. Um, but to me, they are just as accomplished as the gold medalists. I mean, like at the end mm-hmm. of the day on that competition, field it's like the difference is so tiny so tiny between number one and number two and in fact um one of the um silver medalists i've interviewed for almost gold her name is yael arad um she won the first ever olympic medal for israel um and her sport was judo and uh, when she was in the final um she was up against a french lady Um, And they, Mm -hmm. you know, they fought and it was a draw. It was basically a panel of judges decided that her opponent won the gold and she won the silver. Um, Like, how do you explain that? How, how, like, you know, she, she told me, she's like, you know, Julia, I looked at back at my video and I couldn't find a a single picture when I was smiling. Well, of course you were not smiling. (laughs) That day, you know, they, 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 it was very brutal. And, and that, in a way, is the beauty and the craziness of sports, um, which is why I, I'm so falling in love with sports. You know, Julia, you know, while we're on the topic of women's sports here, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're starting to see more women referees and coaches in the NFL and NBA. Mm-hmm. What do you foresee as maybe the next big milestone for a woman to, you know, make an impact in professional sports? Um, I get this question a lot. Uh, first of all, I just want to tell all the listeners who are out there, um, approximately 4% of sports TV coverage is dedicated to female athletes. Over 95%, they're dedicated to male sports. Like, you know, and like, I don't have to tell you about, you know, March Madness, the handle March Madness is reserved for NCAA men's basketball. Um, The women's NCAA basketball tournaments, they have a totally different handle. I think it's NCAA WBB, something like that. But that was, it was treated like an afterthought. So the plane is not equal there. To answer your question, the next big milestone or, or the milestone that I'm looking for is one day we do not have to bring up the fact that someone is female. They are just introduced as head coaches. They're just referees. They're just general managers. They're just presidents or other front office employees. Like we, you, you probably, you know, talked about Kim Ng, like I talked about her on, on, on different shows. Oh, first ever <laughs> female GM, who happens to be Asian American, uh, shout out, um, of her league. And, and people um, back in uh, the, the later, later part of uh, 2021, 
when she was appointed, people asked me, Julia, how qualified is she? I was like, God damn it, she's overqualified. <laughs> Don't you see? Yeah. This could have happened like 10, 15 years ago, not in the year 2020 when she was finally appointed, right. but she was still introduced as the first something. Same thing, like Becky Hammond, like, you know, she's an assistant coach she's not the head coach maybe she'll be up for the head job one day you know i would like someday people introduce oh here's the head coach of this team basketball football any any team and it just happens to be a woman right you have like the first uh i believe the first uh nba female uh referee was violet palmer right like she she was introduced as the First female. If someday we can get rid of that word, I, I would love to see that. Um, Sarah Thomas, for example, she was the first female full-time official in the NFL. Uh, she made history at Super Bowl 55. She's the first woman referee at a Super Bowl. Um, if someday we don't introduce them for their gender or, or include gender as part of the introduction, I would say we've hit a major milestone. We're not going to do that if, you know, Jane Doe is the 2000s uh, general manager of this league. Like, you're not going to say she's the 2000s. You're just going to introduce her as her. Like, here's her name, and this is what happened. That's what I would consider as a milestone. Yeah, that's good. I, I, I absolutely agree with you, right? And I have a daughter of my own, so I kind of, um, I can relate. And she's, you know, in women's gymnastics right now or doing girls' gymnastics. And, you know, unfortunately, when the Olympics come up and we're talking about gymnastics, the shift, um, the media has been really covering the controversies with former coaches and medical staff's inappropriate behavior. So personally, you know, I get kind of worried because my daughter, I know she's probably not going to go to the Olympics. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, you never know. <laughs> yeah, you never know, right? So, but have you covered this case? And, you know, do you know if the Olympic Committee is taking um, any measures, I guess, to make sure it doesn't happen again? And we know the chair is has his own controversies, yes, so I have yes. my doubts here as well. Um, right? <laughs> I, I have covered this, and this is also personal because gymnastics happens also happens to be one of those artistically displayed mm -hmm, judging yeah. sports. Um, yeah. The person at the center of this is Larry Nasser, as you are well aware, um, former mm -hmm. physician of yeah. um, Team USA, USA Gymnastics, and uh, Michigan State University. Um, he's spending the rest of his life in prison uh, right now, I believe, in a high school security prison in the state of Florida. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was grooming, sexually abusing hundreds, hundreds of young athletes underage, a lot of them underage. Um, wow. I personally do not believe uh, from, uh, you know, the former USA Gymnastics CEO, Steve Penny, to the Marta Caroli and her husband, I, I do not believe they did not know about it. There were investigations yeah. being done. They were like, oh, well, they didn't really know about it. Um, I, I do not believe that, uh, especially for the Carolis, that would, their Texas ranch was was the de facto Olympic trial ground, or at least mm -hmm. it was the Olympic trial prep ground. Um, Olympic trial happens in, you know, broad daylight and spotlight and you're on TV and all that. You have that ambiance. But their Texas ranch has been closed down, but it was the pre-trial ground uh, for Team USA. There was no way they didn't know about it when they were the people who ran the place. Um, the other person in the center of this was John Getter. Um, he you know, eventually ended his own life after he was charged with, I believe, 24 different counts of sexual abuse, mm -hmm. um, human trafficking. Um, he was t telling, you know, young athletes, he was abusing athletes, female athletes, as young as 10 years old, um, wow. telling them wow. to... Sad. Yeah, like, I don't know how, mm -hmm. how old, uh, you know, is your daughter, but it, it, that's not something you would want to happen to your daughter or your son or exactly. any of your friends. Yeah, or anybody, anybody right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, exactly, he was exactly. he was frequently abusing young athletes. He was yanking them from height of um, like 15, 16 feet. He was causing, you know, serious injury and not to mention all the psychological abuse. Um, there was uh, reportedly one, case when he was following a, an underage athlete into her locker room and asked mm. her for sexual favors and said, well, if you didn't uh, just, if you did what I told you to do, as in, you know, you practiced well, then this right. doesn't have to happen. 
um, he made his victims to apologize after they attempted suicide. Uh, <laughs> that's just not horrible. a time. Yeah, yeah, what a horrible, what a horrible human being. And while those things were happening, both Larry Nasser and John Getter, they were getting paid. They were getting paid. They were paid a lot of in, in the millions, um, even as these, I don't know, what do you, like sexual abuses, alleged yeah. abuses, or, or were going on. It was it was handled miserably. And uh, at the end of the day, okay, they're like, well, we're revamping the entire thing after USA Gymnastics were torn upside down. Uh, right now, the national coordinator who replaced. Um, Marta Paroli has a new title. It's called High Performance mm-hmm. Coach. Um, they're trying mm-hmm. to rebrand the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but, they, you know, frankly, there is no indication that they're taking effective precaution to prevent this from happening again. Yeah, and it, fe- it feels like they could do more. Right? They could definitely do more. They, they could like definitely do systems, more. systems, uh, chaperone system. Yes, um, they could definitely there, do right? more, especially for young women. Um, and even mm-hmm. my favorite athlete, Ashley Wagner, she came out years after she you know, retired. She's like, oh, actually, at one point I was abused by somebody. It, it is a difficult thing to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. Usually, I mean, not usually, but but I hear this a lot. It's like, why did you tell this like 10 years ago when this was happening? Well, I didn't feel like it. <laughs> or, or I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to have any backlash against me. Or the no. best reason, yeah. guys, I don't want to lose my Olympic team spot. How about that? Yeah, and and you also mentioned that the coaches made them feel very guilty too, right? And very yeah, yeah. they had to apologize, so they yeah. probably felt like they did something wrong, and yeah. that's not something you want to share with the world when you thought you did something wrong. So. Yeah, so it was it was routinely covered up, and frankly, I don't see anything USA Gymnastics is doing that old that you know that screams oh this is gonna prevent things from like this from happening again i don't see anything like that so far oh and just to add to that there you know unlike other countries american olympic organizations are not federally funded so the revenue and money actually flows directly through sponsorships here so you know that's why you know from from the public's view you know there's a lack of accountability um, with that administrative staff um, there. And, you know, for our audience who, you know, want to lo- know a little bit more about this situation, there's a documentary on Netflix called Athlete A there. And it kind of shines a light on, um, you know, the stuff that we have talked about um, here. So if you guys want to, you know, take a look at that, you can definitely tune in on Netflix. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, ju- yeah. So Julia, you know, you know, while we're on the topic of women's gymnastics um, here, you know, it's always been the highlight of the Summer Olympics. And, you know, growing up in the 90s, um, you know, I grew up watching that Magnificent yeah, Seven Chow in 1996. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Yeah. You know, that was the Olympics <laughs> yeah. in Atlanta, led by yeah. Shannon Miller, you know, yeah. Carrie Strug, Dominique yeah. Dawes um, here. You know, how does this current team uh, stack up against, um, you know, teams like that? Here's the thing with Team USA, and this is not just gymnastics. This is also swimming. This is also a handful of other sports. It is harder to get onto Team USA than winning a gold medal at the Olympics. Team USA in many disciplines could send our A team and B team and we would end up one and two at Worlds or the Olympics. Uh, (laughs) Team USA, in terms of swimming, gymnastics, a few others, the pool is just so deep. Um, I cannot predict who would definitively on the team. I will give you an example, though. Um, In 2016 Rio Olympics, so one of the weaker, we're not weak, but like one of the weaker, if I have to pick one uh, for for U.S. gymnastics, is the uneven bar. Um, there were two uneven bar specialists, um, Madeline, Madison Koshin and Ashton Locklear. They are the same. <laughs> they don't do the same routine. But you look at their score from this this competition, from that competition, like at, like compare them side by side. They're virtually the same. 
And then yeah. at the end of the day, they went with one of them. The other one was left as an alternate. So technically she was an Olympian, but she was not on, she didn't compete for Team USA. She was an alternate. Um, it, it, I, I don't, I cannot make that prediction. Um, how does the current USA gymnastic team stack up against the Magnificent Seven? I would say better. Uh, only because the wow. Team USA is led by since um, the 2016 cycle, uh, Team USA had been led by this phenomenon, phenomenal uh, young woman named Simone Biles. Um, yep. She had moves named after her, Biles Bios, the Biles 2, like uh, it was a yeah. full floor <laughs> move, like usually you do four jumping paths on the floor. Um, she could do Biles 2 as her last jumping path when her legs were all tired, when athletes the top athletes from other countries mm -hmm. they could not even do bios two as their opening jumping path that is the difference uh yeah i would that's say that's amazing right the yeah. final five um with gabby D um douglas in there ali reisman mm -hmm. i remember that was a really really strong um gymnastic team in 2016 yeah, yeah. At one point, it was, you know, the, the Romanians. Roman, if you're a Romanian athlete, it, it's your birthright to go to the Olympics. But that sort of faded after the 2000s. Um, and that was when American gymnasts really dominated the field. It, it is, and, and again, this is not exclusively just this sport. Uh, many sports, Olympic sports, it is harder to get picked for the team than mm, to win mm -hmm. a gold medal, not just any medal, to win a gold medal at the Olympics. Yeah, and just to give our listeners some perspective on Bios's uh, achievements, you know, she has a combined 30 world and Olympic medals all time, which is um, third most of all time um, here. And um, I think this is going to be her last uh, Olympics, so there are some concerns <laughs> Um, from Olympic fans, you know, how the team is going to um, compete after bios. But, you know, if you're saying that, I, I'd say, yeah, you know, the competition in the U.S. There, there is nothing to worry yeah, about. If, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're saying that the competition is pretty fierce already in the U.S., then there's really yeah, nothing so, to so worry about. Usually here. during the Simone Biles era, if you get number two mm -hmm. in the United States, that's a gold medal. At least that's how mm -hmm, athletes yeah. I spoke to, how they think is like, oh, there's no way we can win. Like, there's no way we can beat Simone. So I'm just going to shoot for number two. Oh, yeah, I want this <laughs> because I got number two. That's yeah. what everybody was going for. Yeah, we have nothing to worry about. Yeah, so I want to um, pivot our conversation towards sure. sports activism um, here. You know, out here in the Bay Area, Colin Kaepernick received a lot of, you know, backlash for electing to mm -hmm. kneel during the national anthem um, during a football game you know, protesting police brutality in the U.S. and basically jeopardizing yeah. his football career. He's not even yeah. playing football um, ever since. How do you feel, you know, sports activism has evolved um, this past year? And do you foresee media members and athletes continually publicly expressing the their opinion? The short answer is yes. Uh, sports activism has always been a stable in the United States, I would say. Uh, and this is coming from somebody who did not know anything about sports before, so I hope this means something. Uh, Colin Kaepernick, mm -hmm. he, of course, caused controversy by kneeling during the national anthem, and people were burning his jerseys, and he hasn't really been played. But he was not the first athlete to pr protest that way. Um, I, I'll give you just, just mm -hmm. a few very handy examples. Um, 1968 uh, Olympics in Mexico City, sprinters Tommy Smith, John Carlos, they they each raised a black gloved fist when our national anthem was playing. They wanted to send a message to the world. What message? Well, a message about America's racial inequality. And what was the result of that? Both of them were suspended from Team USA. They were scorned by the media back then. They were called unpatriotic. Fast forward 40 years later, what happened? Well, a statue of them 
was built in their honor at their alma mater, San Jose State University, very close to mm. where you are. Uh, <laughs> so I feel like the country has changed. Of course, that was a 40 year span. Um, right now with social media, everything travels faster. In a way I felt from the 2016 season to 2017, 2018, and, and going go beyond, Colin Kaepernick, thing, the, the controversy was well-traveled, was traveled at a faster rate than these things yeah, ever yeah. travel like Fox News I remember had ESPN's then host Brickman Henry on to talk about oh you shouldn't do that and I understand that a lot of sports fans feel like oh my god I want my Monday night football I just want this night off I want to not talk about anything else I just want to be able to enjoy <laughs> sports but the reality is sports had always been part of our life, as in, you can say it's been part of politics or not, but it has always been part of our social life. And our social life is multidimensioned. For example, like at every sporting event or every medal ceremony, you played the national anthem. That is a political statement. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how you how you how you think about that. And then um, another thing. Uh, I mean, I have quite a few examples. I could I could just think off the yeah, top of my head. You should ask um, Mark Cuban about the national anthem. When yeah, I know. Next time when he's on my show. Next time when when, when uh, he's on my show. Uh, he's just a great guy. Um, think about it. Like, uh, was it was uh, two thousand. Um, 2016, I believe, um, Laura Ingram, Fox News uh, anchor, uh, Laura Ingram told LeBron James, shut up and dribble. Just do your yeah. thing, shut yeah. up and dribble. But before LeBron James, he founded his charitable organization. Mm -hmm. uh, before he was told shut up and dribble, there was Elgin Baylor. He was, you know, the highest profile. I think he's the most underrated NBA athlete, I, I think, just because he played mostly at a time when video footage wasn't ubiquitous. I don't think most of his um, plays were captured on video. So maybe mm -hmm. people, you know, our generation don't know him that well. But I, I thought he's such he grew up in a segregated, segregated Washington, D.C., he knew, he felt yeah. that intimately um, when he was, I, I forgot which game that was. I, I think it was, um, he was in that West Virginia with the Lakers. I don't remember who they were playing. So he and other uh, two black players, they weren't allowed to stay in the team hotel along with mm. other people. You know, he felt that intimately. And then think about um, boxing legend, you know, Muhammad Ali. When mm -hmm. he was drafted for the Vietnam War, that was 1967, he said, and I'm not saying this myself, he said, I ain't gotten quarrel with those Viet Cong. That's mm -hmm. his words, right? He was fine. He was, uh, he was sentenced to five years in prison. Uh, he eventually did not go to prison because he appealed. And he was banned from his sport for three years. After the ban was lifted, he reclaimed his heavyweight title. You know, he's still an iconic boxer, but he, there was always something social issue, political statement, whatever you call them, with him. Yeah, it, it, you know, it, it has mm -hmm. always been around before Colin Kaepernick. And there was a, this um, NBA player, uh, he played for the Denver Nuggets, Muhammad... Um, Abdul Raoul, yeah, is that him? Yeah, he was, yes. Yeah, yes, yeah, he yes, played yes. in the he 90s play, or so. He was playing in the 90s with Denver Nugget, and he chose to sit during the uh, national anthem. Um, he said that standing for the national anthem contradicted his Islamic belief. Hmm. You know, it, it's, it's, would that be his choice? Do you have to stand for the national anthem? I mean, he said, and again, I'm quoting him, you cannot be for God and for oppression, right? Even mm. though he averaged uh, somewhere close to 20 points per game. <laughs> but he was wow. still traded. He was still traded in 1996 or after the uh, 96 season. Um, Naomi Osaka at the recent example at the U.S. Open um, in, in New York in 2020, she wore names of black victims before and after her matches. Mm -hmm. um, Formula One, their their car sported yep. these statements. Lewis Hamilton, Lewis Hamilton, um, he, I, I think he is and and still still is the only black driver in formula one 
Um, he won like, you know, so many Grand Prix and he wore a t-shirt that said, arrest the cop who killed Breonna Taylor on the front. And he had a picture of Breonna Taylor on the back. Um, and we don't have to mention how many NBA players they, and WNBA players, they, they came out to protest. Um, at one point in the year 2020, NBA, the organization, they approved 29 messages. Like there were 29 pre-approved messages for teams to, for players to wear on, on their jersey. Uh, and by the way, I just want to say this is super ironic. Say her name is an approved message, but Breonna mm-hmm. Taylor is not. <laughs> How ironic that is. Uh, so Colin Kaepernick is only one of the most recent athletes who stood up for what he believed in. Um, And I'm not saying whether I agree with him or don't agree with him. I'm just saying sports, they're just part of our life. Um, Just like a Hollywood actor, Mm -hmm. actress can express their belief. um, Athletes to me, they're, they're not different and you really can't stop that. Yeah, and I think when you brought up the 1968 Olympics and one of the um, under undercovered or underreported um, as part of that whole situation was actually, I think, Peter Norman, who was mm-hmm. an Australian that won second place. Yes. He actually received a lot of backlash for wearing that um, the hu- Olympic Project Human Rights Badge. Yes. Right? I think there was a recent article I read that kind of g- finally gave it some light that he, when he went back to his home country, was really, really crucified, right? Yes. For being standing up next to him and maybe even more so than um, Tommy and John Carlos. Yes. So it's, yes. Uh, it's kind of interesting that you, you don't really hear about these types of stories. So it's, um, you know. Yeah, let, let's face it. In in the United States, we, at, at least the theoretically, we, we have the freedom of press. We, we can, yeah. anybody can form a press <laughs> except the government. But in so many countries in the world, press is controlled. Um, mm-hmm. Australia is not one of them, but still, you know, pe- people have this, this sort of like a, like a control over what can you say, what can you not say? Um, so I can only imagine that in those countries, you get crucified even more, like in a much more tangible way, as opposed to in the U S oh, you get caught. Oh, I hate got it blot and then end of the war and the end the story except in Colin Kaepernick like he hasn't he hasn't played um but um most of the players say um I, I would say a few years came out a few years after Kaepernick they weren't crucified as mm. far as I can tell yeah. No, no, he was ahead of his time. I think Kaepernick, yes. when he kneeled, was uh, maybe two or three years ahead of everyone else. Because now with yes. the whole Black Lives Matters movement, everyone's like, okay, we get it now. Yes. Yes. So I know you cover technology as well in sports. Um, do you have any technical te- technological advancements that you've seen at a smaller scale that you think will eventually? You know, move on to the mainstream. I know the pro sports are really looking for innovation and all this stuff, but they always feel like they're a little bit behind, right? So, do, um, do you maybe a little bit behind in terms of adopting technology at a big, you know, on a wide scale. Um, one of the things I talked about recently on one of my shows is how the 40 yard dash might become obsolete mm-hmm. anytime, you know, any, any moment. Mm-hmm. Um, of course that is a, you know, NFL drafting stable. You just run them and then you see <laughs> how they do. Um, it was Gil Brand. He was like, since the sixties, he would send his scouts out with stopwatches and sometimes even measuring tapes. He was like, Oh, it doesn't matter if you don't have a field, find me anything. Like I I don't know, a hotel hallway, just run them, right? And then if you remember when um, Tom Brady ran, ran in quotes, um, his 40-yard dash, he, 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 I mean, he, he's an awesome player, but he looked like a little duck when he was running his 40-yard 40, 40 dash. Um, any day now, the 40-yard dash would become obsolete because there is GPS tracking technology mm. that's going to get, the data of where a player of, of interest is on the field at all times. If right. you have data going back to X many years, however you define X, like two, three, five, six, however many you want, if you have that data to replace the 40, like what do you need the 40 for? when you know exactly where they have been in the game because the point of the 40 is to predict Mm -hmm. how they would react on game day 
Um, so yeah. that's something I would definitely see is going to become and, obsolete and anytime. I always thought it was really funny because, like, you would do the 40-yard dash during pro day, but then you're not wearing any pads, yeah. right? And there's yeah. no defenders <laughs> in front of you. So yeah. you're just wearing a straight line. It's like a very... Um, I guess controlled environment yes. versus actual game day situation. Yeah. I mean, I will tell you as, as a fan, uh, I, I like seeing it. Uh, yeah, like racing, right? Yeah, it, it's it's like a made-for-TV event. Like I can just see my producers going there. They put a camera at the 10, 10 you know, the ten, the twenty, the thirty, and mm. then finally the forty. And they're like, "Oh, this is how it's going." And you have like the the clock showing. It's just exciting to watch. Uh, I don't yeah. know how helpful it would become once you have enough GPS tracking data, you know. Yeah, anything. that's very yeah. interesting because I think a lot of pro day events should be changed or updated because they've yeah. been doing the same thing forever. Like some yeah. of the bench presses and things like that, you're just yeah. thinking to yourself, well, how is that really relevant to the sport itself, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yes, exactly. That's a very good point you make there. Yeah. Do, do you know anything about like CTE um, coverage um, or any question yes. protection? Because um, I know that's yeah. a hot topic for the NFL lately, right? That yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm really glad you guys talk about it on on the show. Um, just disclaimer, I'm not a doctor, but I've, I've worked with a lot of doctors um, through the uh, healthcare startup mm -hmm. that I founded. Um, I'm, I'm not running it now, but um, I've spoken with a lot of doctors. Um, the I guess the most, I mean, CTE, okay, chronic traumatic um, encephalopathy, that, that's just horrible. Mm -hmm. But the encouraging thing on that front is doctors, they have developed a set, set of uh, consensus criteria to diagnose these symptoms among living people. Keyword is living. So there would be some kind of biomarker that could de definitively say, okay, does this person have CTE or not have CTE? And if he or she does have CTE, which stage? Stage one, stage two, stage three. Um, like for the longest time, CTE is um, can be only diagnosed after after the player or, or the person dies. Um, I mean, you guys are in the Bay Area. We all remember Dwight Clark, um, mm -hmm. just such a... Mm -hmm player uh, you know yeah. i i i really like i i guess even someone didn't know much about swords like i remember his face so i'm sure everybody mm -hmm. else knew him <laughs> um i remember he was talking about how he was uh in the car um with with randy cross right and, and then he was going to his first super bowl and they were playing the song this is it <laughs> Like yeah, this is it. <laughs> and, um, so he he was wide receiver. He played uh Super Bowl sixteen, Super Bowl nineteen. Mm -hmm. Um, but catch, unfortunately, yeah. yeah, yeah, the catch. Um, that mm -hmm. he suffered um CTE. Um, there's uh Frank Gifford, who's a little bit closer to my life because after he retired from you know he he was the face of New York Giants for for a long time. But after he retired, he was a play by play announcer. Uh, for 27 years on on ABC, um, and he's married to a fellow TV host, uh, Kathy Lee Gifford. Uh, I've, I've never worked with her, but she's great. Um, so all, all these beloved player and junior say all all these people, long list of names. Um, we learned that after they passed they had this horrible, horrible disease. So there, there are development on that front, as in if we could definitively diagnose CTE while they're alive, maybe, just maybe, we can do something about it. One area um, that some researchers and doctors they've been looking in is um, they're, they're looking into animals who that, that that routinely have to bang their head against mm. something else like um I, I'm not sure what you call it. What, what's that like a ram you know, yeah a ram yeah like, like, like a yeah. ram yeah big horn big mm -hmm. horn ram like mm -hmm. they would just hit their heads against each other they're fine <laughs> I mean as far as the scientists can tell and there's the <laughs> uh, woodpecker that that little bird they oh, yeah. bang their head against the tree <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. like I don't know a thousand two thousand times a day something like that um but as far as the science goes, uh, it is suggested that both of these animals and other animals too, their brains are protected against concussion because of this, this phenomenon called um, 
the uh, this phenomenon is called the bubble wrap effect. I thought it's a cute mm. name. So basically, yeah. <laughs> their their brains are naturally protected. Um, there's more blood volume to fill their brains vascular trees, um, and therefore mm. they don't get prone. Because usually, when when you get CT, it's it's a buildup from um, a protein called tau. Uh, tau, yeah. the Greek letter. Um, so you know somehow they're not subject to that. Um, I don't think. I don't think the NFL, I, I realistically, I don't expect the NFL or even college coaches to make any real changes on that. I mean, Americans, we're, we're just obsessed with mm-hmm. football. Um, I, 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 I will tell our, our listeners that uh, in back in 2020, seven out of 10 most watched TV broadcasts in America were footballs. And not mm. not just among sports broadcasts, yeah. like all broadcasts. Yeah, yeah. And, and you could probably guess what were the other three, the two presidential debates and one vice presidential debates. Amazing. <laughs> all, yeah, all other seven were football games. Uh, that's our um, obsession with football, and it's a great sport. But, but, you know, the average football player, not even just pro football player, like student football players, mm-hmm. young football players, on average – each season, they hit their heads somewhere between several hundred to a thousand times. If you do the math, if you wow. play for 10 years, wow. your head gets hit yeah. 10,000 times. And and don't ever tell me if I hit something 10,000 times, that's not <laughs> going to make an impact. No, no pun intended. It's going to make mm-hmm. some kind of difference. Um, right. The, the uh, doctor... And the key, um, you know, see, I'm not, I don't want to introduce her as a female doctor because some, see, in the, in the, <laughs> in the scientific realm, you don't have to do that. We're already there. Like Dr. Anne McKee mm-hmm. of uh, whichever university she works at, I believe it's Boston University, when she dissected over a hundred brains uh, donated by the family members of uh, former NFL players who passed, all but one had CTE. I, I cannot, it, it, it's wow. clear as day. It's Amazing. clear as day. And I I do still hear coaches, uh, some football officials, they're like, oh, we need more study. We always could study more. I know. But that I is they should not. Look at, they need to start looking at more treatment plans and yeah. things like that, right? I yeah. think it, yes. We already know we can't prevent it from happening, but yeah. maybe we can lessen, yeah. lessen the load. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, man, I yeah. think um, Brett Favre has a podcast, and I think in the third or second episode, he actually had a specialist on there that talked exactly what you were talking about, about the ram and the mm-hmm. woodpecker and oh, the okay, okay. green. So <laughs> that's worth a, worth a listen for everybody, I think. Um, you know, so. Well, Julia, you know, we yeah, don't want no, to take up you. too much of your time here. We can talk to, we can talk to you for hours yeah. and hours, I feel like. Um, here, but um, you know, we no, really want to thank you I for mean, you, you know coming time, on to um, our show. Come on to my show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> any time. <laughs> yeah. You know, we would. You yeah, know, we're no, gonna take you up to that serious. offer like, someday. Um, here, you guys are in, 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 in. Like, you know, we can do this virtually, but um, usually, I, I like to yeah. have my guests in the studio. Um, okay. During the coronavirus lockdown, okay. I did tons of interviews, um, you know, on, on, on Zoom, on Skype, um, on different. Actually, one of my mm. favorite interviews that I did during the coronavirus, that whole year <laughs> lost to COVID, yeah. was with uh, Eduardo Press. Um, he he talked about you know the the league, his his career, his dad mm. playing baseball. All of that. It it was probably my awesome. favorite interview during the COVID lockdown. But usually, if, if yeah. I have a, if I have my pick, then I, I would like to have you two in the studio. Yeah, we'd be more than happy to do yeah. it. So just let us yeah. know whenever yeah. you're ready. Of course, of course. <laughs> well, um, yeah, we want to thank you for coming on once again here, and uh, we really enjoy yeah, you. um your show, you. uh, United We Sport, everyone. Um, where can our um, listeners, uh, you know, well, find you I, I think, on the world wide web? If your listeners like me, then they'll probably just Google me. <laughs> so my website should be the first mm-hmm. one. Uh, my website is www.juliasun.tv. You can also find me on social media. Um, you can find uh, more about my show, Almost Gold, uh, as we 
you know, push more things out. Uh, but I'm overall very excited to work with these Olympic silver medalists. And I will say that again, for somebody who didn't know any athletes growing up, for somebody who didn't know anything about sports growing up, I can't believe these actual silver medalists are talking to me. <laughs> so it's, it's quite a change. You're like, oh, awesome. these are not just your average. These are really accomplished elite athletes. And I'm grateful that they are talking to me. So um, as I publish their stories, as I tell their stories, which I think they totally deserve as much as the gold medalists, um, you can find them at various places. So if you like our episode today, uh, you are welcome to Google me. You are welcome to send me a DM. I did check mm -hmm. Mike's message. Uh, so I do read them myself. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> awesome, Julia. Well, Thank thanks you. once again. I'm yeah, um, here and let's uh, yeah. do it's this so again. It's so nice to meet you guys. Soon. Yeah, same here. Yeah, yeah. Nice yeah to meet absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you everyone for listening to this week's episode. We will see you again next week. Take care. Okay. Thank you for listening to the MJ Sportscast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at the MJ Sportscast at Mike408 at Mind of Jerry11. Tune in next week for another exciting episode.